Hello, and welcome to a very cold version of the Plastic Press Gang podcast. Uh, my name is Calvin. I uh, use he, him pronouns. And I just did a fun little Stalingrad simulator uh, this morning. And I am Eric. I also use he, him pronouns. And being the much smarter of the two of us, I am simply looking out my window at the stark and barren frozen landscape uh, laid out before me and intended to go absolutely nowhere today. Well, I need caffeine. I'm sorry. It happens. I laid caffeine in before the weather got here. Some of us make smarter choices. And we have a really fun episode for everyone today in that we're talking about what we actually like to do when it comes to the whole of human history for wargaming. Because there's a lot of things in there. You know, we can't do everything. That's hard to do. Yeah, humanity at this point, recorded history is like five or six thousand years. Uh, it turns out the slightly clever monkeys uh, like fighting. Uh, so there's been wars that whole time. And so the question is sort of what for us makes a interesting period to play in? What do we look for? And is really, we thought, sort of a, a light, sort of fun episode to kick off the new year. Uh, just thinking about sort of what is it what is it that in the, the broad breadth of the wargaming hobby makes us go like, ooh, let's try that. But that comes after our standard bookkeeping of what have we done recently and what we're doing right now. So, Eric, what have you been doing for the historicals side of things? So I've been doing a fair amount, actually, which is nice. Um, I have I have tried in the new year to do a little bit better at the whole work life balance thing. Uh, so there are two sort of major projects I'm working on right now. The first is um, a one in pr primarily involving my 3D printer, which is nice because uh, that's a thing that you can uh, set up in uh, sort of some time while you're on a uh, Zoom call or something like that. You can you can you know find models and source them and, and set them up in, as a project in your slicer and then send them off and the machine will tell you like five hours later, hey, it's done. And you're like, I did hobby things. Um, so one of those projects is setting up a little bit better. There's a lot of interest in bolt action in our local community and I wanna help support that. Uh, so I've been printing up a fair number of, um, at this point, mostly printable scenery, but I've got a couple other sources, um, random French buildings for fighting in random French towns. Uh, because really, if you want for a lot of the periods that are well-supported and that we play in the club, uh, a random town in France is not the worst bit of terrain to have. But the larger and the bulk of my 3D printing activity right now is Calvin and I are planning a sort of demo game concept um, for folks, because we live near two colleges and we want to try to recruit from those colleges. And so uh, we're creating a demo game called What a Stormtrooper which is essentially what if you took uh, two fat lardies, what a cowboy rules, um, and played the uh, music from The Mandalorian behind them on loop. Um, so the idea is it's it's very small sort of Star Wars tattooing gunfighter stuff. Um, and so I've been printing both the models for that and a hopefully very crowded sort of Western-themed tattooing town. So... There's a pub, there's a mechanic shop, there's some houses, there's some battered houses, there's a storage tower. Um, and all that comes from Imperial Scenery and has been keeping my printer busy for the last two or so weeks. The more recent project is, and Calvin and I will talk about the game in our next session, 
Uh, but we played Cruel Seas, and the uh, avid Battlefleet Gothic enjoyer in me went, this is great. I want this. And this will, again, probably be the subject of a, a whole ass episode at some point. I am building the World War II Irish Navy in a slightly alternative reality, which is basically just taking Royal Navy ships and painting them slightly differently. But this game is uh, was super fun, and um, I like little tiny ship models. So my desk is currently covered in them. Excellent. Just being on the fringes of seeing that research once in a while has been very entertaining. It's been very fun to sort of dig into, like, what did the Irish have in 1940? What would have been reasonable for them to have if things slightly changed? So I'll discuss in a future episode my approach for how to do this, um, because I think it's a a sort of fun and interesting way of of looking at historical settings. And I'm I've done it with at least two because we're also working. Uh, this is the uh, what if the Swedes were in the Cold War plane, which is also um, sort of a combination of alternate histories. So, yeah. So but that's what I've primarily been working on is Star Wars buildings and tiny ships. How about you, Calvin? Well, for historicals. Uh, just we lock off there. A few big things happened since last episode. Like I finished painting uh, two whole brigades of Napoleonic French in some period between 1809 and 1815 because I'm too tired to button count, so I don't. I also managed to finish off the Third Crusade Lion Rampant Force, which I mentally went a little bit ahistorical in some of it where it's like, yeah, they all have red crosses on their shields. Why? Because it looks good. I don't care. In addition to the previous starter set for Cruel Seas, I also added on... Grab the box real quick. I added on the British starter fleet, although I didn't... I haven't finished all the new Vospers yet because I had to modify some of them to carry six-pounder guns on the front because they did that for some reason. Who knows? There's some lessons from the Americans, I guess. And in non-historical options, what I've done is I actually recently... Oh, sorry, I just remembered another historical project I looked at when looking at the weather outside is I completed my first unit for my planned Winter Germans. So they'll be done soon. Uh, In slightly ahistorical, I finished the pulp interwar early World War II Navy guys, like some PT boat crew running around out there. So I crossed off that box on my oval list, which... Yay. And then now that I can to the actual non-historicals for our What a Cowboy plan, I have painted the actual thing that set this whole thing off, which is I have Mando and Grow Guy. I know that's probably not the correct pluralization, but it's the one I'm using. Little tiny Yodas need to get painted. Well, no, they are done. Well, yes, little tiny Yodas need to get painted and you sorted that out. Yeah. So the idea that I had been running around for how to use Mando in the game is Baby Yoda runs around semi-randomly. Maybe we get out an actual scatter die for it. And if someone gets too close to him, Mando shows up and shoots everyone on his way out. That seems not unreasonable. This is a way for one of us uh, umpires to also get in on the game. Yeah. So speaking of games, uh, Calvin, have you uh, played any games recently? And if so, uh, how'd that go? Well, we played Cruel Seas, and you called it a very expensive day because you eventually went out that night and bought lots of Cruel Seas. I did indeed. I bought the British Starter Fleet. Let's see, the British Starter Fleet, some uh, 
various and sundry civilian freighters because I am a sucker for like modeled objective markers. Um, and so I was like, ooh, I can get a, a, a freighter? Yes, I can get a sunken freighter? A flower class Corvette? And then the extremely narrative and wildly impractical, but super cool looking uh, Campbelltown, which we will do the Saint Nazaire raid at some point, or um, again, we'll talk about this later, uh, but I figured the Irish also probably got up to some mischief um, as they do. That'll probably be used primarily for genuine sort of scenario play because it's a, it's a wildly impractical model to use in a regular game. It's too big, it's got too many guns, but also not enough guns. Um, and we'll get torpedoed almost immediately. Uh, but it's, but it looks cool. Uh, so I bought it. Uh, so that puts me at nearly all of the things I need for Cruel Seas. There's one or two more ships that I'm eyeing, but that's about it for, for the Brits. And then I'll probably do the Italians or something. But yes, yeah. it was an extremely expensive day. Wherein uh, we both torpedoed ourselves. Yes, but one of us was a better torpedo uh, crewman to their own detriment. Yes, the uh, well-trained steely-eyed British forces um, managed to torpedo uh, one of their own Vospers, and that torpedo was armed and successful, and thus blew up my my second Vosper, because it turns out if you have 35 hit points, 16d6 damage is real bad for you. We didn't even count on the exploding six. We didn't count. Um, No, we, we counted how many fives and sixes were there to get you to 35, if you assume they're all fives. We were well over the threshold of it blowed up. So we didn't bother counting the exploded sixes. We didn't bother counting the lower dice. It was just like, yeah, no, that boat's dead. And then the uh, dastardly Germans in typical Third Reich style uh, poorly manufactured their torpedo. So it struck the side of their freighter and just kind of went gong and then sunk, which was fine because the surviving Vosper then spent the rest of the game circling said freighter peppering it with machine gun and 20 millimeter cannon fire. And it died. And it died. Uh, that was a that was a really fun game. Uh, it's got me really interested in Cruel Seas. I have some thoughts about like the number of activations you get and torpedoes and the interesting interaction between those. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a promising game that uh, y'all will probably hear more about. Well, I know you said that you're thinking about putting it like in the same category as Aeronautica, where it's like, do I play this forever? No. Will I play this happily once or twice a year? Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't feel to me like the game that I'm going to play every Friday night, that like Cruel Seas is my game. What it does feel like is two things. The first is something that I can paint and finish, and that's really nice. Um, I have trouble finishing projects, and so it's fun to think about projects where you can like put an end cap on it and be like, yep, this is my fleet, and it's all of it. Um, and then I also think sort of like we played two games. We played an intro game and the sink the freighter scenario and we played it in like an hour and a half. Yeah. And like, we don't know how to play this game. And so it plays pretty fast. So I think it makes a great sideboard game for like, hey, what do you want to do tonight? I don't really know. Do you want to play Cruel Seas? Like it doesn't require much packing. It doesn't require any terrain, although we'll have some at the club. I actually, one thing I'll have to demonstrate is I'm going to turn on my camera and have you describe what you're looking at. Yeah, uh, Calvin's got his entire fleet in the classic, you thought there were cookies in here, but it is instead sewing equipment style cookie tin. Uh, he's got all his stuff magnetized and sitting in there. And so like, yeah, hey, Calvin, do you want to play Cruel Seas? Is cool. I'll grab the cookie tin. 
uh, which is way different than like 40K, where there's an entire industry of aftermarket army carrying solutions, or even something like, you know, bolt action or something like that, that, that similarly has that problem. Did you play anything else? Well, we did also play a game or a couple games of Seven Days to the River Rhine, which we've been talking about a lot, and we finally played it, and our verdict is pretty fun. Yeah, um, that was a pretty fun game too. Again, fast playing, which was nice. Uh, we played the sort of suggested getting started level of 250-ish points. Uh, which for the uh, heroic Danes defending their homeland from the dastardly Soviets is four Leopard 1s. Uh, and for you was... Two T-72s and three T-55s. Yep. Um, and so that went really well. I think it was fun. It's fast playing. I think it gets the vibe right and ended up very, very close. He had two surviving T-72s and I had one Leopard 1 with a sort of freaked out crew who decided that Sterling Archer style to just yell Rampage and go for it uh, because playing conservatively was going to get them killed. Uh, and they managed to blow up both of the T-72s that were facing them, sort of pulling out a, a victory from the jaws of uh, all three of my platoon mates are dead. Uh, so yeah, it was a really fun game. Uh, we're going to need a ton more terrain for it. Uh, so there has been a another 3D printer purchased to basically be dedicated to 15 millimeter terrain for a bit. I thought that was a another great game, um, really sort of light playing. I think, again, it'll be really fun for scenarios and sort of asymmetrical warfare. And then um, Calvin will, in future games, figure out how to use APCs and infantry. And I will figure out how to use helicopters because that's what we sort of our respective, the random miniatures we purchased for this game include. Yeah. Although on the other plus side is one of our club mates, Kai, did in fact show up with a big pile of Team Yankee terrain as well. Yeah, he's got some old school railroad terrain that's of the perfectly right scale. So especially if we want to play some some Red Dawn Soviet invasion of the United States nonsense, we've got a perfect amount of sort of Main Street Americana to roll M1A ones through, which is super cool. And along those same lines, again, shout out to Kai. Uh, he's got a full Team Yankee army. So, like, he's got Soviets, he's got Americans, he's got more than he needs to play seven days. Uh, so we'll probably be roping him into that soon. Uh, because it turns out, from several discussions with him, his approach to Team Yankee is we really should be playing with smaller forces than we do. Which is good news, we have a game for that. That was fun. And then on my end, games not played with Calvin that still count as historicals. Because it was freezing, uh, a friend of mine and I decided not to go to the clubhouse because we live five minutes from each other and 45 minutes from the clubhouse. So he met up at my house, which had, you know, a working heater, a kitchen table, pizza, and two dogs, which is the ideal gaming space. Uh, and I set out a three by three mat and some train and we played uh, a game of Silver Bayonet and actually sort of played this as the first campaign game. The scenario was a... Uh, French silver bayonet agent had been believed to be killed, but uh, both our teams were sent out to confirm that that was true. And uh, it turns out that the reason he was only believed to be killed is because he was in a goblin infested forest. Uh, hijinks ensued. Uh, there was sort of a skirmish between the Russians who uh, our buddies playing and my British. 
Uh, and then goblins attacking both groups. His werebear got bogged down in fighting goblins and could never quite actualize his full werebear self, which is unfortunate. Uh, the goblins were really interesting because they're not particularly dangerous, but they're very hard to kill. Uh, they have damage reduction four, which is rough. And then also they turn off guns within six inches of them, which is really unfortunate because all my guys for various solutions to monster problems was custom ammunition. Uh, and if your pistol only has a two inch band within which it works, that gets a little rough. Uh, but we managed to see off a couple goblins, find the Frenchman's body, take his signet ring as confirmation, and then hoof it with the uh, 95th rifles providing us covering fire for my two riflemen who are definitely the MVPs of my band so far. Uh, while the uh, sort of badly mauled Russians beat a hasty retreat, my buddy has been sort of now rethinking how he uses his werebear. Basically, our conclusion was right now he uses it as the, the 40k term for this is a distraction carnifex. He puts it on one flank, he runs it forward, and you have to pay attention to it, and you have to pay more attention to it than it deserves. But the problem with that is in campaign play, that gets the werebear killed a lot. And so the conclusion is either he needs to be much less sentimental about his werebear and just say, like, every poor teenager with lycanthropy in Tsarist Russia gets rounded up and sent to go fight monsters. And like, who who is this? This is today's werebear and nobody bothers learning his name. Or the other option that I have um, suggested he try is actually putting his werebear like in the middle of his force, supported by his priest, and essentially rolling up the field challenging anyone to try to get close to him um, and like bullying people off objectives because nobody wants to fight a werebear. Especially no one wants to fight a werebear with support where you could charge in with a couple decent guys, but guys who aren't going to win the fight, but will give your opponent fatigue tokens, which then means the werebear is much more likely to hit and will just maul whatever it attacks, both figuratively and literally. Um, that's painting, playing, and the hobby update. Uh, so Calvin, why don't you uh, lead us into our main topic? So our, as we mentioned at the top, our main topic today is what makes an interesting period to game in? You know, what makes us choose, you know, the War of the Spanish Succession over the War of the Austrian Succession or anything like that? And we have a few theories on that, but also... The issue is for every single one of these things that we, you know, name off, we are also going to have periods that we enjoy that do not have that at all for most of these. And our number one thing that we have on there is variety in scale and theme for games. The biggest example I have for variety in scale and theme, I will point to Napoleonics, which has... You know, you put 35 gamers in a room, tell them what their favorite, you know, Napoleonic rule set is, you're going to get 36 answers. But you can go from, oh, I want to do core level, like three millimeter. I want to do the entire war down to we've got six guys killing each other in a farmhouse. And you can add supernatural things here and there. So Napoleonics are a game that is interesting because you can do whatever. And it goes all the way back to the very first war game was a Napoleonic war game, Little Wars by H.G. Wells, which is somewhere on my shelf behind me. And I'm fairly certain behind Eric on one of the shelves. Yeah. 
And I think where this really comes in um, is this lets you not have sort of a one and done approach to a period. Like if you're interested in a period as a thing to game in, you end up getting a lot of mileage out of out of settings that are really varied. In addition to uh, Napoleonics that Calvin mentioned with land scales, you can also have naval battles. You know, the seas are now battlefields, etc., etc. Hashtag Master and Commander. Um, you've got a variety of things you can do there. As as you said, a variety of themes, anywhere from, as mentioned, like Silver Bayonet, which you could play Silver Bayonet without the supernatural part, and it would still be pretty fun. You've got things like Sharp Practice that are definitely smaller unit-level conflicts where you have heroes uh, that are really well-suited for different parts of the war. Um, at some point, we'll do like a, a, <laughs> a four-episode thing on the, the Napoleonic War. So you've got a lot of variety there. And that also brings us into sort of our next sort of topic and what makes an interesting period to game in, uh, which is more of a hobby one, which is interesting uniforms. Anyone who has listened to this podcast and knows how much Calvin and I like the 30 Years War is now immediately raising their hand and uh, objecting because various shades of brown. But uh, interesting uniforms are a really helpful way to add a little bit of variety to your painting, to promote hobby projects, things like that. Oh, you know, I'd really like to play, you know, something with a really vivid color scheme, or I'd really like to try drab, or like these guys have winter uniforms, and that's sort of a super cool thing that I can then like experiment with basing on and tie it into a snowboard with terrain, and that'll look great for uh, my stuff for Silver Bayonet. Our plan is to paint all the monsters and terrain in grayscale and then only have the units in color, which is particularly well suited for the Napoleonic War because like red coats will pop, as will blue, as will green. Um, I'm a little bit struggling with the Austrians. We're gonna we're gonna figure that out. But that's um, interesting uniforms. Calvin, anything to add on that? Well, another example of interesting uniforms is if you can go absolutely ham on something. For example, I'll point to like, you keep bringing up the idea of doing, you know, the French for the Hundred Years War, or uh, slightly tipping our hand to later, the War of the Roses, we may not enjoy gaming it, but holy crap, do those armies look cool Yeah, when they're all laid out. Things you can go ham with are fun. Um, another one is like camouflage schemes. So the uh, this is actually great for the Cold War. Uh, because you can get really creative with those. You know, you can do like Berlin Brigade British who have a just nutso camouflage scheme, uh, scheme, which then you have to figure out like, okay, how am I going to airbrush these little tiny squares and get them all, all going? So like, I think there's a lot of really, there's a lot of varied settings with really interesting uniforms that are a lot of fun, which then uh, brings us to the next one, which is very gamey, which is interesting tactics. Calvin, you want to uh, lead in for this one? Well, for this... An example I'll point to is the idea of the limiting types of units in the Thirty Years' War, like Pike and Shot era, where it's like Pike, Shot, Cavalry, Artillery. And each one has a very specific role that makes it very interesting to try to use together, because none of these pieces work on their own. They have to be supported by other things, and you have to think about it in that way. Another example is I'll point to... World War II, you can get very interesting tactics with small units supported by by like armor. Where do you have this idea of you can't let the tank be out on its own, otherwise it's going to get turned into mush by something. 
So you support it with the infantry that you have with it and the idea of things working together. But then you point to like, to add on the exception on this, like the uh, Ancients battles, you know, anything like uh, Agincourt, any of the battles in the Crusades, any like type of like Roman battle, two groups of guys run at each other, smack, try to kill each other. So I'm going to argue about Agincourt, but we'll do that later. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things is, is and this is where, this is sort of a fusion of the period and what games exist for that period, because you have uh, some things where you have interesting tactics because there are genuinely very different armies that have very different styles of play. So to uh, allude to one that I'm going to touch on in a bit, for the Viking Age, the Vikings don't have cavalry. If you're fighting Normans, the Normans do. And what does that mean? Or uh, if we talk about some of those things. And so there are different sort of forms of this. So, uh, you know, does your game allow for, in, in the case of like the 30 Years War, where we talk about this, they have very uniform armies in terms of what you're capable of, of fielding because everybody's just fielding German mercenaries. Can you express that in how that's used? Because in sort of spirit, if Calvin has 3,000 points of pike and shot and I have 3,000 points of pike and shot, and we line them up together and march them forward, in theory, we should always have a tie. And so where are the tactics that come in that can be asymmetrical? So for example, uh, I mentioned like the, the Viking Age or things like uh, Seven Days to the River Rhine, where the uh, Russians potentially have many, many more, but somewhat more fragile tanks. And if you want to play that way, the NATO uh, forces have effectively invincible tanks, but there's only like three of them. And so the, the Russians end up causing sort of morale damage rather than actually intending to like blow up a Leopard 2 with their T-55s. So there's a lot of different ways to express interesting tactics, but I think this is where you get anything that will have a lasting sort of, yeah, I want to play this a lot, is that you don't feel like you're playing the same game over and over again. And there are game systems out there where I, you do get that feeling. We're like, okay, I've, I've, I've played this battle before and it's going about how I expected it to. Or uh, the one I point to a lot, which is no longer true, I think, for 40k. But there was a period where I could predict who could win a game by looking at the armies and how they were deployed. And I was like 80% accurate. And that sucks because then that's not a game. That's just like, okay, cool. Uh, Eric brought Eldar, so he wins. Um, and so uh, looking at things with different tactics. And then I think the one that appeals to both Calvin and I a lot is interesting stories. So Calvin, you want to say what at least you think about what makes a an interesting period for stories? I mean, one of the things that makes you do historical gaming in general is the stories, because history is always stranger than fiction. If you looked at, you know, some sci-fi book that's like, oh, yeah, no, like a hundred guys held this like mission for like a whole day and night versus 4,000 people. You're like, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make sense. And then you realize that's like the exact numbers at Rourke's Drift and you go, oh, wait, shit. An example of her interesting stories is I'll point to, well, actually, these last two points kind of can get balled together a little bit, but the biggest, one of the biggest cultural things for history, like entertainment, is I'll just point to like Band of Brothers, The Pacific, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, mucking around in World War II. The fact that those stories are slightly fictionalized, but still mostly true. And like World War II is a great example of, 
so many crazy things happened where you have someone like Jack Churchill playing bagpipes and hucking grenades at German, you know, soldiers in Norway. Like World War II is one of those things where it's like, these are stories that are told to us that we learn about and go, that's fucking crazy. Yeah, so to allude to the second thing, because I'm, I'm gonna do the same thing. The other one is interesting media, which is a way in which a story is told. Similarly for World War II, like I am definitely sort of quietly binging Greyhound while I work on Cruel Seas stuff, because it's good. Uh, you know, who doesn't want to play the 95th Rifles primarily because they watched the Sharp series and, you know, 90s electric guitar is now playing in their head. So there are, I think, a lot of settings that have interesting stories to them. And again, this is this is sort of, I think, a combination of the actual history and gameplay is are there settings that let you tell those stories? You know, for sort of game systems that are good for that, there's a there's a lot of systems with very narrative elements to them. You know, we played um, Pikeman's Lament games where we don't actually really ever fight each other uh, because the goal is to make off with some supplies or something like that. There's a lot of interesting stories and interesting media around that, and I think this is one of the things that does sort of shape the landscape for wargaming. Is for example, I think. The Peninsular War in the Napoleonic period is probably overrepresented due to Sharp, and the Russian side of things is probably underrepresented. Similarly, one of the things I have been... It has been explained to me by British gamers that one of the popularity drivers for the English Civil War over the Thirty Years' War is a series of sort of media that was playing on, I presume, BBC during you know, formative ages for current war gamers. Uh, and then similarly, like, yeah, everybody who starts a World War II game in the United States is like, should I be playing just basically the 501st? And like, can I, can I have Dick Winters as a character in my army? So there is definitely, I think, um, an element to that in terms of what makes things interesting. And again, um, one of the things is, is these are things that call to us, but many of the periods we're talking about may lack one of these. And then many of the periods we're talking about may check all these boxes and still not sort of make it. So this isn't like a checklist, but it is a uh, list of things that, that we think are interesting. So uh, what we're gonna do now is we're gonna go through three or four periods or conflicts that we do find interesting and talk a little bit about why we find them interesting. We're gonna alternate between me and Calvin and then we're gonna talk about some popular conflicts that other people like that we don't. And why is that? And so we're gonna talk about these elements and we're gonna start with Calvin. Calvin, do you wanna uh, start off with your first one? So the first thing I have on my list is the Anglo-Zulu War, which this one's interesting because it actually, it came to me first when I was listening to a pod, I was trying to find a podcast to listen to about history. And I found one called the Red Coat History Podcast. and. The first seven episodes are about the Anglo-Zulu War. And so I just went through it. I listened and went, damn, it's such an interesting conflict for where they got to. And then what happened in that conflict, where it starts with one of the biggest ass whoopings the British Army ever received in modern history of Islandwana, where it's just like, yeah, they all fucking died, which I mean, heck yeah, kill the colonizers, but... It's also an interesting thing to look at for like a difference between asymmetrical tactics because the Zulus, they had slings and bows and arrows, so on and so forth, versus, you know, the Martini Henry rifle, which it's interesting to read accounts from Zulu warriors who fought 
in that war where they're like, oh yeah, no, that stuff like took people's arms off. And it's an interesting thing to see the difference between the two. And then of course, I cannot undersell the amount that the movie Zulu, which is not entirely historically accurate. I understand that, but we put it at the level of it's 80% historically accurate. It's like fine. And seeing Michael Caine that young is a really weird. It is surreal. I feel that way about watching uh, The Men Who Would Be Kings. Yeah, and then of course also the blue eyeshadow with it too. Like, like I guess, go off. And it's also one of the first historical periods I started working on. Like, I think I mentioned, it might've been in our first episode that the thing I was finishing then was my army for the game, The Men Who Would Be Kings. And it's interesting to see because this is another example of, you can do this at lots of different levels because Black Powder, for example, has a supplement for the Zulu War. And it comes with uh, another one of the worst fail sons of European history, because it comes with Prince uh, Louis Napoleon, who did that thing of not listening to an NCO and then getting got, which, haha. <laughs> and then it's also just been really fun to work with because the uniforms look really good. Because it was like one of the last wars where they were wearing the red coats and the blue pants and like the white cross belts. It is a setting and also because the British are historically in that um, setting wildly outnumbered and uh, the Zulu army is not itself uncolorful. It does indeed lend itself really well to spectacle games. I, I will say that. Yeah, but that's kind of through my first one. And Eric, what's your first one? So a theme that... Uh, y'all are probably going to pick up on is I like very messy wars where you get to dodge the like, why is X fighting Y? And the answer is like, because it's Tuesday. Um, so I really like Renaissance Italy as a setting. Uh, I recently sort of binged the, the Medici series that was on Netflix that was actually sort of decent. And here you get some really interesting sort of opportunities. You get very colorful, again, uniforms. Um, you've got mercenary personalities who are these sort of menaces that exist throughout time, and uh, they can definitely be encouraged to switch sides, start a war with Venice, start a war with the Pope. Uh, the Pope is involved. The Papal States are a thing. You've got politics, you've got intrigue. And then again, you have a lot of varieties of scale. You can do something like it's probably Hail Caesar. I'm sure there's a there's a large scale uh, version of uh, this. Pike and Shot is the one that they do it in for like the Italian Wars. There we go. Uh, Pike and Shot. Um, I was like, it's either Pike and Shot or Hail Caesar, and I can't decide which. Never mind. The Bill Hooks has some stuff for this. Like, it's a really good setting for why is any given Italian city state fighting any other Italian city state? Is sort of like I don't know. Make it up. Which is one of the things when when I approach historical war games. I am playing in periods. I'm not trying to replicate individual battles. Uh, I know for some historical war gamers, that's a terribly upsetting thing for me to have said. So like, I think you get a lot of ability to be flexible here. You've got a lot of color, you've got a lot of character. And then again, you have a variety of settings. So as, as um, I was sort of talking about, uh, you've got unit scale, large army scale battles with Pike and Shot or never mind the Bill Hooks. You've got all the way down to very small scale band of Venetian thugs is after your nobleman 
can you get him to his manor house and his own guards before they chase him down? And that's like, here are your seven dudes. Here are my seven dudes. One of them has a horse. All right, away we go. Um, And so I think there's a lot of uh, play there. There's a lot of potential there. um, And it's a good sort of setting to mess around. And also you get mercenaries. So if you're like, yeah, I want renegade Frenchmen. You're just like, hey, the French are going to go sack one of the many cities in Northern Italy that the French have on occasion asserted they own. Um, so there's a there's a lot of different sort of areas of play there. There's some decent media now. Um, you could just play Assassin's Creed over and over again, and that would be a decent way to do it. Ezio Altatore is by far the best character in that entire series. Renaissance Italy is is my first choice. Another generation of German mercenaries has hit the podcast. Yeah, like literally endless German mercenaries is apparently our, our podcast vibe. And it's funny because of the two of us, I'm the one with the... Uh... Landsnecked army. Yeah, I should I should note I don't have anything for Renaissance Italy, uh, but someday, someday, someday soon, hopefully. I guess it's back to me now, and this is one that's going to be no surprise to anyone on the podcast or who listens who knows me personally. North Africa for World War II. Well, like the easy answer is I like tank, and North Africa lets me have many tank, but I also kind of really enjoy gaming all the other weird things that happened. One of my biggest bucket list projects I have ever wanted to do is an army for the Long Range Desert Group, which is the lesser known of the two British Special Forces units in North Africa. And the one that I think is more interesting than the SAS, but they're both very interesting. So that's why I have them actually mostly worked out. And this is an example of the exception here is there are not interesting uniforms everyone is wearing tan i don't have much options there the germans are tan the british are a different tan the buildings are tan the ground is tan the vehicles are tan the vehicles are tan what color is all the weathering tan tan but yeah i think north africa is also a good one um for your particular inclinations because it is the tank war but you don't have the the big cats yet for the germans yeah like they got them in Tunisia a little bit, but that's cooking a little bit further on. And, you know, you can you could call that another war, the fighting in Tunisia. Yeah, but like you, you it's not you're you're not sort of dominated by the the German players all wanting to bring a tiger. Uh, there's a lot of Panzer threes and Panzer fours, which is nice. And also there's a lot of back and forth in that that particular war. It's not sort of a linear campaign. Um which is there's also the fun part where i get all the weird early british tanks like crusaders matildas a9 cruisers all the weird janky light tanks that are hilarious which i do actually need to get a crusader that's on my list for soon it's an interesting war or theater of a war for that because yeah the british notion of how tank warfare was going to work was just shattered in France. And so, like, they're having a rethink in real time uh, during the the war in North Africa. So I think it's a really interesting period. And then, of course, there's also the stories bit of, like, the SAS raids on airfields, which sounds like a bad action movie. Where it's like, what'd you do? Oh, we rolled another runway and shot up everything with machine guns. What? <laughs> it, it works. Did you actually let anyone know you... You have those machine guns? Oh, we borrowed them. 
others are very like this is the origin of special forces hijinks, uh, which is which is fun. Yeah. So we've alluded to this next one for you a few times, Eric. So why don't you go off? So so this is another everybody is fighting everybody. Uh, the Viking Age. So I like the Viking invasions of England, Ireland, France, all over Russia, basically everywhere. There's this sort of defined period of history that ends with the Battle of Hastings where the Vikings are up to no good. And uh, the reason, again, this checks a lot of the sort of boxes for me. You have a variety of scale and themes. You have anything from like one longboat doing cool sort of stuff um, you know, the, the sacking of a particular town and its defenders, something like that, you have all the way up to army scale things. So right before the Battle of Hastings, uh, the sort of last shot that the Vikings have at holding England and, and being a major player in the fate of England is defeated. And uh, then Harold goes and probably gets himself beaten by William the Conqueror. But like you have, that's a, that's a battle with armies. And so you have a, a good um, mix of those things. You know, you have the Siege of Paris or you have, you know, a raid at Lindisfarne and, and everything in between. You've got some interest in uniforms, primarily shields for this one. Um, you're going to get a lot of cool shields on all sides, uh, a lot of color, a lot of irregularity. You know, we're definitely in the raised armies and a few sort of professional bodyguards era rather than the like, yeah, everybody gets a uniform and a standard thing. I alluded to the tactics. You've got sort of a, a variety of tactics. If you're looking at sort of the Normans, again, I mentioned they've got uh, they've got cavalry, and the Vikings don't. You've got a lot of you know. Do you want to take a large number of peasant militia, things like that? Um, again, if you've got sort of a club setting that you're playing in, are you playing you know Mercia, Northumbria? One Viking group, another Viking group. The, the Vikings fought on everybody's side at some point because you can pay them. And so there's a lot of, of I think, different different battles you can fight and you don't really need to justify them. Uh, so again, I like that. And then there are a lot of interesting stories and media about the Vikings, many of which are historically dubious. Face paint is the new horned helmet for things that there is no evidence that the Vikings ever did. But... Uh, there are some fun ones. So like Bernard Cornwall ended up writing a series that has then been um, turned into a Netflix show called The Last Kingdom that is great for, yeah, there's just hijinks and politics and then we go to war and it's sort of small to medium scale and it's great. And then sometimes you just have like seven dudes again who are going to go kill some folk. Um, so it's a fun setting for me, I think, because you get a huge breadth of who could be fighting. And it's at a scale still where you can, you know, yeah, this is Ragnar Ragnarsson and he's my, you know, hero type. And you get to where that's still a thing. So, you know, commanders at that point would meet on the field, often get themselves killed, etc. Whereas if you read like one of the most ahistorical things about the new uh, Napoleon movie by Ridley Scott is like Napoleon leads a cavalry charge. Like what? And so whereas like, no, like absolutely you've got leaders fighting in the in the lines with their troops. Also, yeah, that's the Viking Age. And again, you have a lot of different, you know, why are the Irish fighting the Welsh who are fighting the Vikings who are fighting the Mercians? It's like, well, because that happened. So yeah, I, I just enjoy it as a setting. It's another one I don't have anything for yet, but I have 
Bad Squiddo Games, which is Annie Norman, put out a whole um, Viking Women Kickstarter that I have, I think, a Saga Warband worth of stuff for that I will probably actually build a much bigger army out of, mix them in. I love I love me the Viking Age, partially because um, that is the part of history I took a really deep dive in in college. I uh, studied abroad in Ireland for a year. I did half my credits in microbiology and half my credits in history. And one of the most interesting parts of sort of medieval Irish history is um, the Viking invasions of Ireland and the ensuing conflicts. So I took a class on that and it was great. Another thing I was going to point out is there's even, it's entirely in keeping with the stories of the time, the sagas and whatnot. If you want to add random bits of supernatural stuff in there for fun, like there just happens to be like a couple Draugr that show up for this to whack around your, you know, leader and his buddies. Yeah, I think it's one of the copies of, um, not War Games Illustrated, but it might be War Games Illustrated, but one of the sort of historical magazines I have has a scenario for Beowulf. And I was like, hell yeah. And like, it's the same, it's the same models plus a monster. Um, so yeah, you, you can, if you want to add that supernatural element that's there. Um, if you don't, don't. Um, and so I think there's a lot there. And then you also have, I think, um, one thing that interests me a lot is you have the potential for alternate history. So like, no, what if uh, the Vikings continue to hold on to parts of England for a while or like manage to unify Ireland as a Viking state? These are all potentially interesting things where you can then start playing with like, what does that do to Christendom? And you have some great fun there. So yeah. Calvin, what's the next on your list? The next one is thematically appropriate as I look out my window. It's uh, Napoleon's campaign in Russia, which for the record was not a good idea. Um, I just find it really interesting for the fact that there are interesting battles that happen throughout it, whether it's you want, oh, 40 guys killing 40 guys in a field while doing some foraging, whether you want the most bloody battle in European history until World War One happens. There's range there. Do you want, you know, to do uh, Marshal Ney's, like, standing in line with his troops, firing a rifle at, you know, oncoming Russians? Like, you can do so much stuff just in that period. And you also get to have fun, personally, with me. I like snow basing a lot. I'm the one weirdo in the club who likes doing that. Like, it's just a really interesting thing to look at from there. It also leads to some of the greatest quotes you'll ever read from these historical figures who you assumed were like, you know, entirely upstanding and out upright. And there's an actual quote that I'm not editorializing of when Marshal Ney learned Napoleon went back to France, his exact words, I shit you not, that bitch left us, which I'm just like, <laughs> funny. This is also um, the source of one of the best visualizations of all time. Uh, Charles Joseph Menard has a data visualization of Napoleon's march to Russia, which is just fabulous and canonically one of the best data visualizations of all time. Just throwing that out there for the, the real nerds. Um, <laughs> do, I, do I have this hanging in my office? No. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good setting. You have big battles with you know massive armies. You have frozen dudes in a barn. It's great. On the other end of things, uh, my next one is uh, something I consider criminally undersupported. So this is sort of my favorite setting that not only do I not play in, but I don't think anybody plays in really, which is the various and sundry wars in China. Despite the fact that Sun Tzu's Art of War is like cliche business book 101, there are multiple 
periods of conflict in China. You have uh, the various sort of small fragmented kingdoms. You have the Mongol invasion and then sort of semi-states and rebellions in China. You have a huge number of wars in the most populous country in the world. And there's like no miniatures for them and no game systems for them. And what are we doing? What's funny is like the video games have figured this out. There are some great, uh, like Dynasty Warriors is incredibly stylized, but like super cool. Isn't there a total war? There's a total war, uh, War of the Three Kingdoms. Like these are cool and big. And then again, you have like, or dudes raiding a village or, you know, various palace intrigue stuff. Uh, you have some really cool settings, some very different architecture and armor styles and weapons and how things are done. I have seen more stuff on like how to wargame the Boxer Rebellion and like defend the German embassy than I have like wars that genuinely shaped history. So I'm a little bit miffed at this. Wargame manufacturers do better because yeah, I think this is super cool. And I think there's a lot of potential there. I think there's a lot of modeling potential. I like, I just think it's cool and interesting. And then if you go and like look at interesting stories and interesting media, like Chinese filmography about this period or sort of periods, you have like famous movies. So you have like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, like who doesn't want Wirefu War Games? That seems awesome to me. So you have like a lot of different media about this, anywhere from that to like genuine, like large scale spectacle battle movies. It's just cool. You have super cool uniforms. You have tons of flags, neat stuff. Um, and it's just, in my mind, wildly undersupported. And um, I would love if that changed. Aside, if you know of any models for this period, do let Eric or I know. Yeah, yeah. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, you haven't heard about so-and-so's brilliant company level book on this and the supporting miniatures, please tell me um, because I will buy them. Spend lots of money on proper medals. Yeah, because yeah, I'll spend lots of money on probably more metal miniatures, and I hate metal miniatures, but this is where we're at. Calvin, what's your last one? My last one is one that has essentially none of the things we talked about that makes an interesting period, which is World War One. Like, okay, there might be a couple different sizes of games. The one I'm looking at right now is called Scouts Out for Trench Raids, but the uniforms are brown gray and green. The tactics are simple at best. The the stories are all horrible. It all sucks. Media, the best media from World War 1 is how much this all sucks. True, but you have some very good movies about how this all sucks. True. The newest uh All Quiet on the Western Front. I finished watching that movie and had to like wander around my apartment aimlessly for like 20 minutes just to recover. Legit. But at the same time, I find this really interesting. Like, I want to find ways to wargame this. I have a couple projects in mind other than the scouts out. Like, I'm doing a 10 mil Xenos Rampant project of World War One because it'll work. And I have the models for one side all based up. I haven't primed them yet, but we'll get there. I think one of the ways you could explore this to get a little bit of that variety and interest is the other theaters that aren't the Western Front. Yeah, the Eastern Front. So there's the Eastern Front, there's North Africa. That is true. Um, and the Middle East, you know, which is a lot of hijinks with 
German-supplied North Africans versus the British in armored cars. I've got a couple um, issues of various magazines I'll, I'll pass along to you that I think help a little bit. Or there's an interesting one where apparently the, like, trench raids and common no man's land is actually a hive of activity during the when it's dark that sort of typifies the western front apparently that wasn't true for italy and austria well i mean they were busy shooting each other in the alps yes uh, but but there's a sort of an interesting scenario in the most recent war games illustrated that is like then a unit of british shows up and is like okay so we're just gonna crawl around no man's land doing getting into mischief that is potentially interesting. But yeah, I think it's, it's this is one of those periods that I think is also hard to war game because you've got sort of very small unit actions and then things that are honestly best represented by hex encounter games. And it's sort of tricky to find the things in between, but I think they're there and we should go looking for them. And now the last one is one that, if you know us both, probably makes zero surprise. Yeah, so this is the Franco-Prussian War. Um, So this war... Because I'm a huge nerd, I first got interested in this in high school uh, because I had to do a, uh, for my high school program, it was called an extended essay, which was uh, basically like a 10 to 15 page paper on a topic. I picked Prussian military reform between 1805 and 1870. Subsequently, this got sent to the philosophy grading group instead of the history grading group, so I got a C on it. A little bit salty about that. But um, the Franco-Prussian War is interesting because if you look back at the Napoleonic period, the Prussians get crushed and then undergo a series of reforms and then in the Franco-Prussian War, manage to beat what should be the most powerful military on the continent of Europe in the span of weeks. This shakes up everything and is sort of one of the major shakeups in the balance of power that ends up with Imperial Germany and the hijinks that will get us into the First World War, etc. Uh, you have a lot of interesting transitional periods, as much as people talk about the American Civil War as like the intersection of old style warfare and the Industrial Revolution. This was an industrial war. You know, this was especially the Prussians, but also the French, you know, had things systematized, were able to mobilize troops incredibly rapidly. Uh, you have on the Prussian side, you have breech loading artillery. On the French side, you have machine guns. They're not sure how to use them yet, but they're there. And one of the things I really like about this as a setting is that you then do have that different scale. So you have large potential battles um, that are sort of the, the marquee battles that the French primarily lose. But then you can either zoom in on things or have small scale actions about like, so Germany in this war is confronted with what happens if you have to hold France and the French don't want you to. And you have a very fragile logistic supply chain based on railroads. Railroads can't move, so they're easy targets. And one of the things I like about that is the French get beaten on logistics. They get beaten at the strategic scale, at a tactical scale. A company of Frenchmen versus a company of, of Prussians, that's an ugly fight. Um, the Prussians have better artillery and are probably better when you get up close. The French potentially have a machine gun or two and they have better rifles. Like it's a it's a much closer run conflict for a wargaming sort of application than it is in in sort of history as you read it. <laughs> one of the things we don't put down there, but it's, it's one of the things that it's nice to have is where everybody has a shot at winning. And in this one, at a tactical level, the French have a shot at winning any given game. They're just losing on supply chain. They're losing in strategic leadership, things like that. But like a particular captain 
you know, Captain Montpellier and his dudes are probably fine and are interesting to play. The parries have a, there was a sharp practice supplement for the first version of sharp practice. The second version of sharp practice, they've apparently asserted that it's the wrong system for this. The parries, their Valor and Fortitude game, uh, which is written by, um, I th- is that also Rick Priestley? No, Jervis Johnson. Oh, Jervis. Um, so it's written by Jervis. The reason they are doing a Franco-Prussian line is because Valor and Fortitude is supposed to be able to support the Franco-Prussian War. Slight aside on that, they also have a supplement for the War of the Triple Alliance for the same reason. Yeah. Talk about messy wars. <laughs> Talk about messy wars. And so there's some new plastics that support this. You don't quite have interesting uniforms, but they're not boring yet. Um, we're sort of in the transitional period. I have bright red pants. Where we still have bright red pants, but uh, they're not like quite as colorful. But I think there's a lot of, of potential interest here. This is the one where interesting stories and interesting media in at least the Anglosphere is entirely absent. Uh, there's very little on this. I, indeed, I think if you told most people the Franco-Prussian War happened, they'd be like, wait, what? That's a little disappointing, but otherwise from a wargaming perspective, it's one that I've always been interested in and, and always had a little fun with. Also, it's sort of in sort of an Ouroboros of wargaming. One of the reasons the, Prussian did, the Prussians did so well is they wargamed out invading France a whole bunch. Kriegspiel. Yeah, yeah, Kriegspiel came from this. So uh, wargaming the wargaming war is sort of, I think, an, an appropriate homage. So the next sort of topic we want to talk about is some popular conflicts we don't like. We're going to try not to get too negative about this, but these are ones that when you sort of go through this checklist should check the boxes and for some reason don't for one or both of us. And we're going to sort of talk about why that is. So the first one we have on the list is one that we've talked about before in our 30 Years War episode, which is the English Civil War. Like The English Civil War is just a smaller version of the 30 Years War and Cromwell is a bad guy. Sort of full stop. Fuck Cromwell. And so we, we sort of struggle with it because like, I think for both of us, if you're playing the English Civil War, couldn't you just also be playing the 30 Years War and it's bigger, badder, and more consequential? Um, but we're going to move on from that because if you're really interested in why we don't like the English Civil War, there's uh, our whole 30 Years War episode. I'm going to pick a popular one for some folks that I just don't care about. And that's the American War of Independence. I don't know why I don't like it. I just don't. I think for me, like it just for some reason doesn't resonate. Calvin, I believe you and a, a friend of ours have sort of been talking about this. And my answer was like, I'll paint some Hessian mercenaries. I think it's just one of those things where I don't, the, the battles don't really resonate with me. I feel like if I was doing this, I'd rather be playing Napoleonics or I don't know, the Seven Years War or something. But it just doesn't doesn't call to me. Calvin, how do you feel about it? Well, with the American War of Independence, like I'm playing it because that's what our friend wanted to play. And I enjoy it enough. Like I enjoy visiting the battlefields, but it doesn't click as hard for me as some of my other ones that I play. And actually, this kind of it leads into one of the ones that I'm more interested in, but I still don't play. Like I'm still not interested in it, but at the same time, I would happily play it. This kind of for both of us, the American Civil War is an idea of like, while I would still like to play, you know, AWI, I'd rather do the American Civil War and I still don't even play that. I think that's fair. So that's a good segue to the American Civil War, 
which um, in our show notes says ACW parentheses kind of question mark. So I'm going to talk about how I feel about it and then uh, I'll kick it over to Calvin. So in terms of the American Civil War, it checks all the boxes. It's got a variety and scale and theme for games. You can have the more sort of raiding and irregular conflicts that took place on the more Western parts of the war. You can have small scale skirmishes. You can have huge battles, you know, Fredericksburg, Gettysburg, Antietam, things like that. You have interesting uniforms. We're still blue and gray and there's a variety and breakdown in those. You get flags, flags are always good for that. You have the potential for some interesting tactics. You have lots of interesting stories. You have some great media. You know, you have Gettysburg famously is a movie with everyone in it, and it's a fabulous movie. I have two issues with the American Civil War as a conflict that have sort of poisoned the well for, I think, a, a war that I otherwise would be interested in. Uh, one of them is just overexposure. My both father and grandfather uh, really liked the American Civil War, um, so I grew up reading a lot about it and sort of feel like I'm a little bit done with it. It's just sort of overexposure and like, okay, I've done, I've seen this and done that. Um, the other one is political. Confederate apologia hits a little different in the year of our Lord 2024, and it's sort of come to bother me. Um, and so there is a like, I don't want to play a Confederate army. This is actually technically my history. I had ancestors who fought on the Confederate side. They were on the wrong side of that war. I don't want to really play that army. I don't really want to play with someone who's enthusiastic about playing that army. It has some red flags for me in terms of the, the social aspect of wargaming that I'm hesitant. Like, would I play Calvin? Yes. Would I play 90% of the people in our club? Yes. It gives me a discomfort that given there are other wars in that period, in that sort of period that don't necessarily carry those same connotations for me, uh, that I would be more willing to play. But like, it checks all the boxes it should. Uh, if anyone is really enthusiastic about the American Civil War, go off King. And if you'll loan me an army, I'll play it with you. Like, it seems interesting. It seems fun. It just doesn't, the vibe isn't quite right for me. And I'm kind of in that same boat on the political side where it's just like, no, I don't want to play, like, I don't want to play a slaver rebellion. That doesn't seem like fun to me to paint or play. But I put kinda on there because like you, my dad is very much into the history of the Civil War throughout my childhood. We visited a lot of battlefields. Uh, and if he looked at me and said, hey, Calvin, would you like to do American Civil War? I would say absolutely. It's like I would do it to play against him specifically. But otherwise, nah, the, the slavers would live in a box that I'd never touch other than that. Yeah, that's sort of where I'm at is like, if my dad was like, what I really want to play with you is a Civil War miniatures game. I'd be like, all right, there are boxes from order, like on order from Warlord and Perry today. But like, I mean, we talked about it. You were like, we talked a little bit about the American Civil War. And like, I immediately started coming up with ways that I wouldn't have to play the Confederacy. Shoehorning in the Prussians showing up. Yeah, like... What if the Germans intervened to counter the British intervening on the Confederate side? And so, like, Union troops are fighting the involuntary assistance of the Prussians, which is sort of ridiculous. But was like, how, how can I not play 
the Confederacy. An important note for listeners of this podcast. I live eight miles from the border with Idaho. Calvin lives in northern Idaho. There are Nazis a few hours north of me, probably. Yeah, like there are unironically flown Confederate flags and a monument to General Lee nearby both of us. So some of this would change. Like back when I lived in Boston, awesome. Everybody's going to want to play famous Massachusetts regiments, but sure. You know, so, so some of this is the political environment that... Calvin and I exist in. Uh, This is also the reason, for example, that people ask me if I would ever get a 40K tattoo. My answer is no, because I'm a bearded white guy in Northern Idaho and uh, there's too much room for ambiguity there. Um, So some some of this has to do with the political landscape we're in that like, no, there are people who probably refer to this as the war of Northern aggression in and amongst us in a way that is very, very politically visible in our area. Um, and so is a little bit a, like, again, to get really nerdy about this, the Bayesian prior of the guy who's playing the Confederates in an American Civil War game doesn't think they're the bad guys is a little bit too strong to make either one of us comfortable with it. But again, in a different setting, I could see being really interested in it. Moving on uh, is the War of the Roses. Uh, Calvin, I think you put this one on. Yeah, because why do War of the Roses when Hundred Years' War is right there? It's same thing for English Civil War. This is basically English Civil War, technically part one. But in this listing, part two is like, you could play the War of the Roses or you could play the Hundred Years' War. Play the Hundred Years' War. I mean, it depends on which, you know, Shakespeare play you want to reference when you do it, you know? Yeah. So this is, again, a, like... No one is judging you for playing the War of the Roses. The War of the Roses is fascinating. There's plenty of good media about it. Huh, there's Shakespeare plays about it. But for Calvin and I, like, or you could have massive armies of French knights that you spent like years lovingly painting. This has been great fun, by the way, for those of you who pay attention to Games Workshop games. As the old world comes out and everyone's excited about the Bretonians, it's fun to just sit there and be like, hear me out, the Hundred Years War. It's cheaper, it's bigger. And if you just want to lavish knights with individual heraldry like we have a whole setting for that so yeah this is this for us is not like this isn't interesting to us as much as like this is a free time function problem like if i'm painting one this era of history massive medieval army there's a perfectly good hundred years war sitting right there uh so this is this is for us a a opportunity cost version of this rather than like i'm not interested in it Although I think the next one is one that we're both just like entirely ambivalent on. Yeah, this is ancient ancients. Um, so huh, the Sea Peoples, Macedonia, anything like wildly pre-Romans or arguably even Greeks. What I struggle with here for me is I really like terrain. And when I look at the war games that are set in this period, when I look at the battles that are fought in this period, the armies deliberately avoided terrain for very good reasons. Uh, So like you can have a largely blank battle map and like that is historically accurate and appropriate. And that's boring. And it it takes away part of the hobby that I'm particularly interested in. Um, And so that's a lot of my opinion is like, I am, as I've sort of alluded to, my wargaming heritage is Hex Encounter games. Ancients battles feel to me like things that if I'm playing like two millimeter matchstick units on a blank board, we this is what we have Hex Encounter games for. 
Yeah, for me, it's a hobby thing in addition to that, where it's like to play this at a scale where it would be accurate and like usable, huge armies or tiny scale, huge armies. Uniforms are different colors of undyed cloth or, oh, look, the leader has like a bunch of gold on him. Cool. There's nothing there. And the tactics to go with it are, as we alluded to, line up, run at each other. And this is where I think we struggle a little bit with what wargaming plays, which is wargaming generally, historical wargaming generally, is trying to replicate wars and battles that really happen. I think I'm sort of on the on the fringe of, of, of what is written about. I think it's actually probably the majority of games played because the majority of games played are probably bolt action games set in 1944. But like they're trying to mimic real battles. And the real battles of this period that were written down were big. You know, nobody recorded cattle raids, unless you're talking about Irish cattle raids, at which point they made an entire epic poem about them. So like, I think small scale ancients um, could potentially be really interesting, like your shitty little village versus my shitty little village, and we're trying to steal your goats. But that's not what really people look for. Um, and it's not really what a lot of wargaming supplements support. You know, you could do, you could do that. You could you could be the change you wanted to see if you were really interested in you know Irish cattle raiding. But it's, but it's not the the effort to reward ratio for me isn't there. So that's our stance on ancients. And then we're going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum, ultra moderns. Oh, uh, Calvin, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Yeah, yesterday when we were on our run to Michaels. So oh. do you want to sum up your concerns with ultramoderns my concern for ultramoderns is that i see too many 2023 ukrainian special forces and i'm just like let the war end first good fucking christ yeah for both of us i think the the summation of ultramoderns is gauche question mark I do have a degree of discomfort with like, yeah, playing out the Ukrainian war while the Ukrainian war is going on. Uh, my wife brought this up. We were both sort of disturbed by how many people we have definitely seen die on YouTube recently. That like the sort of social media and mediaization of the uh, Ukraine war means you have inevitably watched some people die. And we're not sure how we feel about that. This is also another one where modern conflicts intersect with modern politics in a way that it feels like an opportunity to learn more about how some of my opponents feel about the world in a way that I really don't need to. That being said, sort of one adjacent to that, it's not actually in an opposition to the idea of gaming this setting themselves. It's sort of, again, one of these sort of social contract problems. Uh, because we have talked about sort of porting more ultra-modern games into either conflicts that don't exist, so, you know, Cold War goes hot, Special Forces stuff, things like that. I could also see some, like, near-future, like, Megacorp, Weyland Yotani versus the Umbrella Corp or something, um, sort of uh, warfare that could be, could be fun and interesting. Um, for us, I think, for both of us, this falls in a sort of a political and social contract problem. Um, this is something I do want to explore more. One of the things I have said about this, because there are a lot of veterans in wargaming, I'm uncomfortable playing in a setting where the battle we are reenacting is where one of my opponent's buddies died, is the sort of best way I have to describe that. That being said, I have some friends who are veterans and wargamers, and their take on this is 
more important than mine. Uh, so we're going to try to touch on that in a future episode. So that brings us to the end of what sort of things uh, we wanted to talk about for this. Again, I think for a lot of the settings, and, and hopefully we convey this, a lot of the settings we don't like have a lot of these elements to them, and there's just something about them that makes you go, Meh. For us, some of it's politics, some of it's opportunity cost, um, some of it's overexposure. So yeah, Calvin, do you have any other closing thoughts? Um, one thing I will also throw out there is, if you like one of these periods, live your truth. You're not off. a bad person. Go off, Monarch, you know? Yeah, none of these, all of these, and that's that's something we wanted to emphasize for, for all of these conflicts, is, is there is, these don't grab us for whatever reason. There's no reason they can't grab you. And indeed, several of these are wildly popular. Like the English Civil War, the American War of Independence, the American Civil War, and the War of the Roses are like, we have just knocked out like four of the top ten wargaming settings that exist. We just did. And so so none of this is 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 about like you're a bad person if you play this, etc. I think this is about context for us and our own individual sort of journeys in, in wargaming. Uh, similarly, like if you live in England, the English Civil War or the War of Roses is like something that happened near you. I can see gravitating towards that. Yeah. If you can walk out on Bosworth Field. Yeah. Like, awesome. Um, I was more interested in the American Civil War when I lived on the East Coast. Uh, because, yeah, like the exit for Fredericksburg is on the, the exit for Fredericksburg. So we're not judging you for doing this. These are just things where we wanted to talk about what's interesting to us. The other thing we didn't talk about is, as we went through the ones that we liked, is the ones that we both play and enjoy. And I think the two or three, we're going to do three biggest ones for us right now, are the Second World War, which is, I think, by far the most popular setting for anyone to wargame. There's all, you know, there's all kinds of media. It's wildly well supported. There are entirely different forms of games, anywhere from, you know, tooling around in Bospers and Cruel Seas to massive battles at small scale and something like Flames of War. O Group is a big one I've seen recently for doing huge battles. Yeah. Um, you can't, like, again, the Hex Encounter Wargamer in me is like, you can, like, just buy a box of Kursk. So there are tons of interesting things about the Second World War. The, the Germans have the same problem as the uh, Confederates in this area, but that is sort of a thing that Right now, the answer is who's playing the Germans is Calvin. And so... <laughs> Calvin, notes the Jewish guy. Yeah. So, like, I trust and respect my opponent there. I would be a little bit more worried about it um, if it was just randos. Uh, but, like, it's there. The The other guy who's who wants to play on that side is, like, talking about playing the Italians. And it's like, all right, cool. Italian fascist also not good, but, like, I also know and trust him. The social contract there works a little better. The Thirty Years' War, which Calvin and I have played the hell out of and will continue to play, and Kai has a Push and Pike army, so woo! That, that's going to be a lot of fun. He's doing Cossacks right now is what he's building up. He just built up a bunch of cool metal Wargames Foundry ones. And uh, Homeboy has been converting the Warlord Epic Games things to do Polish Winged Lancers. It's either Cossacks or Polish Winged Lancers, but he is like he is sculpting fur on 13mm figures. Respect. Which, holy crap, dude. Respect. I can't even be bothered to assemble mine yet. Um, so, like, that's awesome. And then the Napoleonic period, which I have the Prussian army for Waterloo sitting in my closet. I will at some point break down and do Valor and Fortitude or uh, Sharp Practice. I have 
two and intend to print a third uh, silver bayonet armies. Like Calvin has all the French in every scale. So yeah, these are these are periods where we both play and enjoy. You can't stop me. Um, that are, on the other hand, either ones that we're going to want to talk about for whole episodes or are not particularly revolutionary. Uh, one of the things we wanted to talk about with the other ones is things that aren't necessarily self-evidently neat. Oh, another thing I'll throw out there and that we both do is Cold War. Yes, we both do Cold War um, because we are... I am more a child of the 80s and 90s than Calvin is because I'm an old man. But like, this is a lot of what we grew up with as like, what a fighter jet is supposed to look like, etc. And again, the Cold War has a nice purely fictional aspect to it that we can, you know, you can do a little bit of research on to be like, who would be protecting uh, Denmark? It's the Jutland Dragoon Regiment. That's awesome. But like, you don't have to look up who was the lieutenant who was commanding a particular platoon at a given time. You can do it ahistorically. You can... One of the things that's genuinely interesting about the Ukrainian war is we might have to reevaluate how good some of the Russian stuff is. But you can ignore that and be like, yeah, but 40 years ago it was better and not subject to 40 years worth of ensuing corruption and grift. So there's a lot of, I think, ways um, to, to look at settings and a lot of settings that we share an interest in. So just a couple quick reminders for those of you listening. Uh, we still have our Q&A uh, going. It's going to happen eventually when both of us are less tired and frazzled by everything around us. Yeah, there was a lot of travel for the holidays. So folks are still getting back from that, etc. Starting back up with school, things like that. And we'll do our best to make sure that the link to the thing is actually in the description of the show. We'll work on it. It's not perfect system. All right. And then places you can find us. Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Variance Hammer. Calvin, you are also on Twitter. Yep. Still there at Brushes and Jazz. I'll eventually go over to Blue Sky uh, when I finish writing out the death throws. Yeah, I'm technically on Blue Sky at, at Variance Hammer. I'm, I'm not sure that I'll stay there uh, just because I might... Dan from the 40k Badcast was talking about this, that he's like, yeah, when Twitter dies, I'm just going to be off social media. And that sort of seems appealing in some way. Uh, but yeah, I am for the moment on Blue Sky. Calvin, you also do some streaming. Yes, I stream uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, where I am either painting tiny mans or clicking on heads in video games. Although recently I've been playing Minecraft on stream, which is wildly relaxing, if you didn't know. Although... Admittedly, I'm building a French farm village from somewhere between the 1600s to the 1800s in Minecraft. And then if you want to email us for questions or things like that, our email is plasticpressgang at gmail.com. And we'd also like to shout out our uh, wonderful staff in the form of Adrian, our editor, who makes us sound less like monkeys and our artist, Space Art Punk, on Twitter and Twitch, who did the wonderful art for our episodes. Uh, so in light of that, uh, because because <laughs> Adrian do need to get paid, uh, we have a Patreon now. Uh, the Patreon is patreon.com slash Plastic Press Gang Podcast. The benefits for that are, of course, you support the show, uh, but we also have a couple tiers that give you access to a, a Discord site per usual, 
Uh, there's a number of exclusive uh, episodes for folks or exclusive access to episodes. Um, and then there is the uh, Emperor level tier, uh, which is you have access to making uh, Calvin paint things for you. So yeah, um, if you're interested in supporting the show, that is again, patreon.com slash plastic press gang podcast. Uh, we're on all the usual RSS and podcast feeds. And um, as with every other podcast, it is easiest to have other people find us if you have left us a review. Uh, so if you're interested in helping support the show, that would be appreciated as well. And uh, have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye now. <laughs>